you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. This story starts back in the spring of 1796 on a warm evening in Philadelphia. Ona Judge, a young enslaved woman in her 20s, has recently received some terrifying news. She found out that she was going to be given away as a wedding gift to her owner's granddaughter. That she would be returned to the South, a place that she had no interest in living. And she made a decision, she made a decision that she would escape. This is a scene from Gimlet Media's Uncivil, which Chinjirai Kunwanika co-hosted with Jack Hitt. Chinjirai is interviewing scholar Erica Dunbar. Fear had to have been in the forefront of her mind. She must have been terrified. She knew that if she had been caught, that that was a, a federal offense, that was a violation. And she also knew that if she were caught, she more than likely would be punished physically by whipping. Or perhaps even worse, she might have been sold off to the sugarcane fields of the Caribbean, which basically was a death notice. Mm. Ona Judge, a former slave of George Washington, is largely unknown to American history. And for many uncivil listeners, white and otherwise, this is the first time they are hearing any of these extraordinary stories. Which is exactly the point of the show and part of Chinjirai's larger goal. From Elias Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week on the show, The Many Hats of Shinjirai Kumika. Chenjirai has the spirit of an activist. But 20 years ago, that activism looked a little different. I've seen true genius, too often to lose the meaningless appreciation of this mediocre nation. I've heard the minus repetition of empty words without tradition turn original verbs into submission. I smell blissful ignorance and addiction, but I guess I wouldn't be right if I said the blood was like a baby pipe. There ain't gonna be no revolution tonight. Half my warriors as high as a kite floss and they lost all they pipe. And I've tasted the bitter tragedy of lives wasted. And men who glimpsed the darkness inside but never faced it. And it's a shame that most of y'all are following sheep, wallowing deep within the darkness. What the game needed was a group that was kind of like the Fugees, but not quite as talented. Hmm. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> I've been a hip hop artist for most of my life. You know, since hmm. at least like fifth grade. You know, oh um, really? In the lunchroom, beating on the tables. You know. <laughs> getting humiliated at times in, in lunchroom <laughs> hip-hop battles in fifth grade. But in 95, I formed, you know, some friends and I formed a group. And in, and in 1999, we, we got a record deal. And the group was called Spooks, which is a controversial name. Um, hmm. 
we really meant it at the intersection of its racial connotations and its and its CIA kind of connotations because we were sort of, but we were inspired by a book uh, by Sam Greenlee called The Spook That Sat by the Door. Yeah, um, that's a that's also a movie, right? Yeah, yeah, it was a it, they made a movie version of it, and it which was certainly the movie version was banned. I'm not sure how long it was banned or what the story was, but it was definitely a controversial movie because it involved a sort of black agent infiltrating the CIA. Hmm. And so I think that, uh, you know, we were, <laughs> we kind of thought that we were like, we we're like, we, yeah, he was infiltrating the CIA and we're infiltrating the music industry, right? <laughs> like that was kind of, <laughs> I don't know if we were infiltrating the music industry as much as we were just being exploited by it. But, uh, but I think that, you know, we, we did, we actually wound up getting a gold single in France oh, wow. and then we got a gold album in the UK and then we got gold uh, sort of singles in like Sweden and, and places like that in Belgium, which has caused some of my friends to like clown me because they'll say, well, doesn't it only take like 5,000 records to go gold in Sweden? And I'm like, yeah, but you ain't got a gold record. Leave me alone. You know, <laughs> <laughs> let me live. <laughs> but even with that success, the shine of the music industry started to wear off. We saw, you know, the negotiations, right? Like we negotiated a record contract. So in that process, hmm. we were like, oh, y'all actually want to take everything from us. You know, <laughs> that's something, again, I would encounter. I would encounter that again later in podcasting as well. Mm. Yeah, oh, well, we'll definitely get there. But. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, he moved back home to Philadelphia, where he started developing after-school programs for kids. And in a way, I was always torn because, you know, when I was developing these kind of like hip-hop programs where after-school teaching kids how to produce, helping them think about their careers... I was like, this in a way is also like the power of music. You know, power of music is not only a commodity because for the youth and folks I was working with, it was just like, a, it was a way they were living. It was a way in Philly at a time when there was a lot of violence where kids wanted to get off the street and they were processing in their music, you know, the stuff they were going through often in, you know, very violent lyrics. And I just felt like, wow, you know, and it was, it was, I mean, honestly, I remember one time, if I could just give you this scene, I remember me as a sort of, working hip-hop artist, but after school, I had this program at a school called Freire Charter School at the time. At the time, I didn't really have a, a critique of charter schools. Now now I do. <laughs> but there was like about 20 kids who were in my program, and they, they, you know, they just had equipment that I had. You know, I brought my own equipment at first, and mm. we were making music, and they just stayed after school making music and making up dances and making writing, you know, beautiful poetry. And they were just doing, they were doing this for like four or five hours. And these are like kids in high school, you know? Yeah. And I just was like, damn, man, this is, you know, in a way it's like, this seems like what music is for, you know? So that felt like a very um, formative moment in your education career? Exactly. So, and, you know, so anyway, essentially, um, it's really important for me to shout out Sam Richards, who was a, a mentor of mine. He was formerly my sociology teacher when I was in undergraduate school. And he kind of was an advocate for me because, you know, I wasn't a great undergraduate student because I was doing all kinds of other things, you know. Hmm. And he kind of said, hey, man, you know, I'm going to be an advocate for you to get into Penn State's communication program because Penn State has a leading communication program. He advocated for me and helped me to get in. And I'm, I'm indebted to him for that. Ginger did go to Penn State and ultimately got his doctoral degree in media studies. And that's where he started thinking about dabbling in narrative audio. I became aware of an organization called Transom because the thing at that point when I was just listening to public radio, I was experiencing actually some of the growth of podcasting. I was listening to different shows, namely like This American Life and a little bit of Radio Lab. Hmm. 
but I didn't think of it as podcasting. I just thought of it as public radio, yeah. you know? And then when I came across Transom, I was like, oh, this is a place that trains people how to do this. And I was like, well, I, I have, you know, I got some interesting stories in my life. I mean, I'm a sort of, you know, failed hip hop artist. I got a story. <laughs> <laughs> interesting you called yourself failed, but I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, nice. Don't get it twisted. I'm nice on the bars, but I didn't really... <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. so I was like, okay. And so I applied to the, for the Transom Story workshop. I was able to take a podcasting week long workshop with Rob Rosenthal. You know, it was like incredible, right? And so mm. after that, I wrote a piece, Vocal Color in Public Radio. I was invited by Jay Allison and Rob Rosenthal to write this piece. Mm. That piece was published on Transom. And I think that that piece is really, in some ways, responsible for why I'm even involved in radio because it, it a lot of people identified with it because it was like me not being sure if I have the right voice. I mean, hmm. and by the way, um, is that, is that ever something that you've like struggled with or worried about? Like whether or not you have like the right voice, you know, t- to do radio. I mean, I think your voice is gorgeous, Nick. I want to say you. That. I appreciate <laughs> that. I, it's actually something I do um, struggle with, but it's, but I have like a, you know, kind of a post-colonial context of it. So I was born and raised mm. in, in Malaysia. So I have, mm. I go back and forth between very sort of Creole, like Malaysian slang to essentially something that sounds like the BBC, which is what I grew up like watching. So that's mm. a little bit of what I struggle with personally. Um, but I think, you know, I, I do, I, I think that piece that you wrote for Transom um, was the, I think, I believe it's the first thing I read for, or like a work that of, of you that I consumed but it's really the first one that really made me go like, yeah, there's something about the public radio system that feels a little bit pernicious in its like aesthetics. Um, mm. And so let's let's lay the foundation to a little bit. Tell me, tell me what the argument was of that piece. It was it and it was an argument that the the sort of vocal aesthetics that there's that that under the guise of professionalism, there has been a certain kind of aesthetic and mandate even, or maybe you know set of standards that have stepped in as what a good radio and professional radio voice sounds like. And that that voice is essentially some version of, of whiteness. In the Transom piece, he shared an example of that so-called professional radio voice, like the ones you'd hear on NPR. For John, losing a fish is no small thing, because John is a fisherman with a capital F. But he also read it in his own voice. You see, what you might not understand is that for John... Losing a fish is no small thing. John is a real fisherman. I mean, this guy's caught hundreds of fish in his lifetime. But my argument was also in this piece that I wrote that, you know, there was dimensions of understanding like what American experience is and what people's experiences and what's going on with social movements and what's going on with capitalism and race and all these other things and gender and sexuality that are being crowded out by virtue of this professional standard, right? It's, yeah. it's So it's like, and that was tricky territory because it, it wasn't about me to try to say like what a white and black voice is, right? It's like, that's very scary territory because you can move quickly into like an essentialism, like, well, talking black is one thing. But people seem to relate to it. And in fact, you know, I had journalists, I had women journalists reach out who were telling me how they had been coached and told that their voices weren't enough and weren't right. Hmm. I did that, and I think that that lead led a lot of people to 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 in radio who were exper- really experienced journalists. It created opportunities for me to work, and so you know, John Bewin reached out. John Bewin is the audio program director at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, and the host of Seen on Radio, 
which was Chenjerai's first major podcast gig. Hello. Hey, Chenjerai Kumanika. Yeah, who's this? John Bwin. Hey, John. What's going on, man? How you doing? How you doing? I'm I'm all right. You? I'm good, man. You know, one day at a time. So I'm doing this uh, this crazy project looking at whiteness. And uh, I'm just not sure I'm up. I'm, I'm not sure I'm the right person for the job. I'm a little concerned about my perspective as a white dude, and thinking I might, I maybe could use some backup, somebody to kind of check me a little bit, and bring in, you know, help flesh out the story with the perspective, uh, your perspective as a person of color in this world. What do you think? Right. You're not asking me to speak for all people of color, are you? Yes. Of course. Okay, good, because, <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. So, <laughs> It turned out that obviously John was up to something far more radical uh, in what he was doing, which is that he wanted to enter into the idea about the history of race, where it comes from, what it has to do with America, from the vantage point of, you know, whiteness and, you know, his sort of embodied experience, right? Because I think part of what makes seen on radio and seeing white very attractive to people is the way it kind of starts out with this sort of gentle set of assumptions that a lot of white liberals have who are well-meaning people, but may not quite understand Hmm. everything that's going on. So, I mean, I think that having that experience and then seeing how people resonated, I was like, Oh wow, it really resonated. I mean, I just got to say ever since from the moment we dropped that my email inbox has been full of people who listened and were affected by it. And one other thing I just have to say on this note, you know, we live in a time where it seems like a lot of people have already figured out what they think. And it's almost impossible to have genuinely transformative um, political conversations sometimes because people kind of already know what you're, people, everybody has their talking points and they're sort of just waiting for the other person to jump in. But I get to see something very different. You know, I get to see people who are really learning you know, I also do organizing, right? And so it's very instructive to me because, you know, movements can't always wait for the least educated people to catch up. Sometimes we have to force what we need to happen, you know? Mm. I mean, because people's rights and lives are at stake, you know? In season four, I said, while white people are learning, black people are dying, mm. right? Yeah. But, but, you know, I definitely see through what's happened with seeing white that people can change. It was a profound experience, and Chenjerai was just getting started. More in a minute. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. 
Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Chen Jirai wanted to do more with podcasts. He wanted to unravel American history, to ransack it, as he says in the intro to the podcast, Uncivil. Here's where things get interesting. Chen Jirai gets the opportunity to make this show with Gimlet Media, the poster child for corporate podcasting. Given Chen Jirai's history with the music industry, his organizing, his interest in radical politics, his critiques of capitalism, why did he say yes to Gimlet? Are you calling me a sellout, Nick? Are you saying I sold no, out? No, I, I guess I'm calling back to, you know, working through the music industry to infiltrate it, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, no, it's it's really great what you bring up. And, you know, again, let me just say, I actually approached some of my mentors before I did this. And so, because I was aware, knowing that history, that we have history, there's tensions. We kind of know how this plays out. Hmm. You know, Gimlet was a sort of venture capital ad-funded thing that was um, operating in that mode. And I knew that those tensions would be there. So I had conversations with, with various folks about it. But, you know, I approached my work at Gimlet like an experiment because I did see and realize that there here was an opportunity to do a massive historical education and, and political education project hmm. into something that I think not enough people understand. You know, one, one thing that continues, I think, to be the case is that many of the leading voices in media, people who are writing op-eds, it's, it's stunning to me how little history we know. And I, and I include myself in that because I'm not traditionally a historian, hmm. right? I just play one on many podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I approached it as an experiment to say, okay, well, Alex Bloomberg personally is reaching out to me and saying, I want to invest in help to promote and create this radical history of the Civil War. And I want to do it, you know, using our platforms and we're going to fund it with ads and everything else. But I want to get it out there and I want it to be as good as possible. I want to, and I'm going to bring the tremendous talent at Gimlet to do that. Uncivil turned out to be extremely popular and would go on to become the first Peabody Award-winning show for Gimlet Media. It reached more people than Chindra could connect with on campus. It held a different kind of power. But the irony of the situation didn't escape him. Gimlet was a place with tremendous talent, but people were working really hard. Hmm. And, you know, in, in, in the early phases when I was there, I mean, I can't necessarily attribute this to anybody, but it was my feeling that some of the people, because of their vocation as storytellers and journalists, and because of their identification with Alex Bloomberg and Matt, who they felt were kind of like nice guys who had their best interest at heart, they were sort of tolerating things that in my mind was like, we should have a union. Yeah. <laughs> you and, know, uh, and so a few years later they do. <laughs> right. And so yeah. to me, you know, so for the so if if Alex or someone else or whoever was to say, well, you know, sure, we had to make compromises with capitalism, but look at all the beautiful things we've created. You know, isn't that ultimately for the good? I would say, why did your company unionize? Hmm. What were the things that caused people to unionize? You know, that's another side that has to be looked at. And I think that that, you know, is not limited to Gimlet, right, throughout the podcast industry. Despite that cognitive dissonance, Shinjirai is still making podcasts. He produced a multi-part interview for The Intercept with Ruth Wilson Gilmore, the claimed scholar of prison abolition. 
And now he's back at his first home, Seen on Radio, with John Buen. In season four, they take on the history of American democracy. One thing I really want to be clear is what I really think we try to do, and one of the reasons why I love history, is that history, I think, gives us an empirical basis to wrestle with the questions we're asking. So if we're Mm. going to talk about police or race, you know, it's like, where do police come from? That's an empirical question, Mm. you know? But that answers, it has a lot to do, and answers gives us tremendous answers for what's happening now and where we should be going. And I think the same is true of other areas that we engage in history. Kenj, you know this very well, but this chant is a staple at marches and demonstrations. And what I think that chant captures is that protest is what democracy looks like. At least it's one really important part of it, right? I mean, protests have played a real crucial role in pushing for change in the past. Think of the suffrage movement. Think of the civil rights and anti-Vietnam war movements or pickets organized by organized labor. Right. People out there making their voices heard directly, forcing those in power to listen, demanding change and demanding justice. But okay, more specifically, what does democracy look like? So I definitely encourage season four, um, the land that has never been yet is what we called it. And of course, Shinjirai has a lot of projects in development, you know. With all that free time he has. I think what happened is somewhere along the line, I forgot how to only wear one hat at a time, you know, (laughs) because, you know, right. Like I'm hired as a professor of media studies, but for me to do that job well means I got to understand the movements I'm studying because I study, you know, cultural industries and social movements. And I understand those movements by being a part of them. And then also as a professor of media studies, I feel like it's important to communicate to audiences beyond the academy. Hmm. And as a podcaster, obviously, I'm, I'm drawing on the knowledge and research from the academy and my access to movements. So I think in that sense, you know, those categories kind of all flow together. But I wish I could only do one thing. I can't. And I just uh, just hope that my wife doesn't choke me. You know, I, I can relate in many, many levels. <laughs> Shinjirai... Thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. And I look forward to the next iPod, man. Hey, appreciate it. <laughs> Keep right. safe. Peace. Shinjirai Kumunika. Season 4 of Seen on Radio is out now. Serving a Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at elias.com slash servantofpod. The show is produced by Andrea Aswahe, Jessica Alpert, and John Perotti at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Serving a Pod is a production of LA Studios.
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.